Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, what up? This is your host, Sully. You're listening to Talking Out Loud, brought to you by Sherholtz Printing. It's great to have you. Probably asking yourself, what are we doing here? It's not Thursday. This is not the new episode for the week, but there are some exciting things coming up for the program here this week. I am sitting down with you on Tuesday, November 17th, and the NBA draft is scheduled for Wednesday, November 18th. So in that breath, I decided to pull back the doors and go into the archives for two of the interviews that I had done in the offseason with Matt Babcock and Sam Vecini to talk about the NBA draft and obviously more specifically about Obi and where he's going to land. So here's what we're going to do. The show's going to be a little bit different. I'm not going to do the intro or any of that jazz. You came here to hear draft talk about Obi. And so I'm going to be with you live throughout these, and I'm basically going to listen to them with you, and then I'm going to point out things that have changed since the conversation took place. Again, this is when May, we didn't know the draft order, and so the conversation is a little bit more ambiguous, but let's be honest, I'm not going to go back and record the same conversation. It's not that much has changed where like the fundamental nature of the conversation will be different. We just have a little bit more information Um at our disposal. So I'm going to repeat the top five for you right now. Let's, let's go into the top 10, the Minnesota Timberwolves. You got the golden state warriors after that Charlotte Hornets, Chicago bulls at four Cavaliers at five. Here's six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. You go Atlanta Hawks, Detroit Pistons, New York Knicks, curse, curse. Don't want them going to the Knicks at eight. Washington Withers at 9, and the Phoenix Suns are at 10. So there's a draft order. We're going to get into that as the show kind of progresses here and and as it goes on. Um, First conversation up is going to be with Sam Vecini. This one was a lot shorter. Sam writes for The Athletic and just recently published a 100,000-word draft preview. So if you like what you hear on this episode and the draft hasn't happened yet, go over to The Athletic and check out Sam Vecini's Again, 100,000-word preview. This is what the guy does, lives and breathes, writing about basketball. You can find him at Sam underscore Vecini, which is V-E-C-E-N-I-E. All right, let's do it. Let's get into the interview. by Sam Vecini. Sam, thank you for taking the time this afternoon to join us. Uh, it's been pretty busy for you, it's needless to say, with the NBA draft coming up, right? Yeah, th- this week was particularly busy. I published three hours worth of podcasts, and I think I published like 26,000 words of content. So it was uh, <laughs> Put me this, shame. Was, this was a busy week for sure. 
<laughs> yeah, I think uh, sometimes I'm like, man, it took me a really long time to write that article. And then I look down at the word count, it's like 1500. And I'm like, okay, maybe I still need a little bit more seasoned. Um, I need to be a little bit more seasoned rather before I jump into the fold of writing full time. But nonetheless, Dayton Flyers fans appreciate uh, that you took the time to profile Obi, as I'm sure you know a lot of people in the business are now. If you, Dayton Flyers fan, have not heard of my first interview with Matt Babcock talking about this exact same subject is a good precursor to the discussion that we're going to have today. Perfect time to jump in to kind of highlight exactly what I was talking about for this podcast. Every time you hear the whiplash sound, I'm going to be talking to you directly, and then we'll go back into the actual interview. Obviously, the Matt Babcock interview is coming up right after the Sam Vecini one, so you wouldn't have heard that one before. Okay, let's go back. So... Sam, let's uh, let's back up a little bit. Um, you put out a 2020 coaches poll, which typically takes into account about 50 or 60 opinions from college coaches about how they feel about guys on your draft board and what the strengths and weaknesses are. Uh, how long have you been doing this project and, and you know, how did it all come to be? So I, I've done this each of the last two years. Uh, you know, it was basically that there are so many really great college coaches, uh, especially on the assistant level, that end up being the people that do uh, scouting, advanced scouting for their teams. And they have this wealth of information to share. Uh, certainly a lot of NBA scouts uh, on the back end do their work and, and do some of their uh, evaluation process by discussing prospects in a similar way to the way I do uh, with some of these assistant coaches. So my idea was kind of like, why not tap into that extensive knowledge just with the contacts that I've built up over the years and, you know, try and put together scouting reports from the guys that have gone against these draft prospects and had to prepare for a specific way to stop them. So I, uh, you know, I just felt it'd be a really interesting way. And of course the best way to do that is to make it anonymous just so that they feel like they can give you the real scoop on these guys and don't have to worry about reprisal from, you know, other assistant coaches, other head coaches that are going out recruiting, uh, you know, public sentiment against them. You know, sometimes they're exceedingly positive, like they were in the case of Obi Toppin. Sometimes they're exceedingly negative, like they were on Ashton Hagens and EJ Montgomery. But my goal is always uh, for my readers, which ultimately fall more on the NBA side uh, of the audience versus the college basketball side. My goal is to provide the fullest experience that I can for, uh, for my readers in terms of who these prospects are as players and uh, what they bring to the table. Yeah. And I, I found it. Um, I found myself truth be told uh, as I was like reading through the previews, trying to figure out what coaches you talk to. Um, Cause I, I know the schedule inside and out. Right. And so I, the one quote that stood out to me was the guy was like, you know, he was the best player we played all year. So I'm thinking back, I'm like, all right, what was George Mason's schedule? What was St. Louis's schedule? And I think he was the best player. Everybody played all year. Um, so you definitely did a great job of anonymizing, you know, the feedback that came in, but I, you know, me, I couldn't help, but kind of consider all right, who might've said this about him, who had trouble guarding him when we went through the season, etc. Um, but off the top, was there something that you learned uh, about Obi, maybe from the feedback uh, that maybe you hadn't thought of before you started this project? 
Yeah, on the uh, anonymization front, if there are any specific references to like what he did in that game, like specific plays, specific, anything specific. I Scratch that from the record, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I take it out or I paraphrase it in some regard. Like I I really am very uh, cognizant of keeping uh, the coaches I speak to anonymous. Uh, I am also... Uh, You know, if there are multiple players, like, for instance, in the Kentucky thing that I wrote, um, Mm -hmm. where, you know, it's coach one, two, three, four, five, six, I mix up the coaches for each player. So, like, coach two isn't the same for uh, Ashton Hagens as he is for Emmanuel Quickly as he is for Nick Richards, right? So, yeah, uh, making sure that it's very, very difficult to figure out who these people are is near the top of my to-do list every year. And... (laughs) uh, in regard to Obi, I was a little bit surprised that coaches were as, I don't even want to say they were positive on his defense, but I want to say that they were a little bit more willing to hand wave. His defense is like, oh yeah, he'll figure it out. Um, yeah. Not to say that I think he was like, I think I'm a little bit higher on him defensively than some other evaluators are. Like I've Talk to like I talked to Spencer Perlman on my podcast this week, and Spencer uh, does not think that Obi is a very good defender at all. And mm-hmm. based off of the tape this year, I actually do reasonably understand being very concerned about Obi on defense. Uh, it's the I, general I, consensus right now among NBA draft prospect or draft writers, you know, for what's worth. Yeah, I'm not quite as worried, if only because guys that have these physical tools that also have feel for the game. I tend to be of the mind that these guys can figure it out. Like if you watched Ben Simmons at LSU, Ben was a fucking nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he was. Well, cause he didn't, he didn't want to be there. He really has started to figure it out at the NBA level. Yep. So, uh, and is now one of the five best defenders in the league. So I, I'm not saying that I think Obi is going to be like some, you know, all NBA defender or some high level defender, but, uh, I certainly am more in the coaches wing of it thinking that yeah he can figure this out but just given how coaches do tend to um try to find the things that they can exploit a little bit more uh i was surprised that they were as willing to hand wave it as they were yeah i'll tell you one thing that surprised me and you just alluded to it um you know the, the ben simmons thing like when i watched him in college i I always use him as an example, as a poster child for a kid that never should have gone to college basketball. He didn't want to be there. He didn't want to play the game. He didn't give 100% effort. And, you know, you watch some of his game film and you're like, why why did you even bother going to LSU? It just, it never made any sense to me. Um, And not that I know him personally or know what his motivations were to go into college, but he just seemed so uninterested in playing the college game. So that leads me to my main takeaway from your article that I, when I read through it this morning, was that... Uh, a lot of coaches seem to think that Obi was disinterested in playing defense or that his mindset was, I'm an offense first kind of guy. And I, I, you know, I kind of wholly disagreed with that only because I know what type of guy Obi is. And I can't imagine that he ever forsaked a part of the game to heighten another aspect, uh, you know, of his, of his basketball playing ability. And so it, it got me to thinking like, I don't think he was uninterested in playing defense, but if you watch the film on Dayton, Grant did not put any emphasis whatsoever on offensive rebounding. 
Um, and he, for Obi specifically, he didn't put a whole lot of emphasis on defensive rebounding for Obi either because his main goal or his main objective out of the break was to hit the fast break. And so that's why I hated so much on Twitter when people are like, oh, look at all the open dunks that Obi got. Anybody can do that. And I was always quick to point out, did you see the five seconds that preceded him cramming the ball into the earth? He got out and transitioned faster than anybody. Sometimes he would be at the foul line with everybody. And before you know it, he'd take three steps and be out in front of the entire pack ready to dunk the ball. So my question to you was, do you share that mindset that he was, it seemed, disinterested on film? Or are you willing to kind of concede that it just wasn't a focus of the Dayton offense? Where do you land on that? Yeah, I think that the contextual factor about wanting to get him out into transition is somewhat real. Uh, I will just generally note that I did feel that defensive rebounding had a real chance to be like Dayton's genuine flaw once they got into the NCAA tournament. Yeah. Um, their defense was I actually, I think any Dayton fan will agree with you right there. Just yeah, by the way. <laughs> like their defense in a <laughs> yeah. 10 play was actually not terrible. If you go back and look like, I think they finished, you know, top three in the league and, uh, defensive rating, yeah. uh, in addition to having the mm-hmm. incredible offense, obviously. So they'd kind of figured some things out on that end. Um, I, I do think that Grant did try to get him out into transition as much as possible, but to a different level as well. Like Obi does regularly box out on the defensive glass. Like, it's not like he's just sprinting the other way. He's boxing out. He's clearing his guy out. He does generally go for the ball. And then it's a quick reaction to sprint the floor and get down the floor quickly because he is faster than everyone else and does get downhill a little bit quicker than everyone else. So uh, I am very hesitant to say that, you know, even Anthony Grant would tell you that you know, he wanted Obi Toppin to get the number of defensive rebounds that he did. Uh, I, I would venture that he would have been ecstatic if Obi could have grabbed more defensive rebounds, uh, given their <laughs> relative weakness on that side of the court uh, within that specific skill. But there is like I do think that it all is a kind of a contextual factor that is. Uh, reasonable to bring into the equation, but I don't think that it is the biggest reason as to why. So you've seen a lot of these guys over the past few years when you've been evaluating the draft. Um, And specifically on your show, uh, one more time, we're talking with Sam Vecini, who writes over The Athletic. Check out the Game Theory podcast on July 16th. They released an episode talking about Obi Toppin for about 20 minutes. So go check that out after you listen to this episode here. But you mentioned that you're not excited about a lot of guys when you evaluate them in the draft, but Obi kind of stands out. My question is, why are you excited about the prospect of Obi moving forward into the NBA? What stands out about him versus the rest of the field? Um, and, and, you know, what can you give to our listeners to say, here is what the consensus is from the NBA community right now as we head towards the draft? Yeah, I would feel most confident saying the consensus is that he'll go somewhere in the top 10. Um, wouldn't mm-hmm. stun me if he goes as high as number three or so wouldn't stun me if he falls all the way down to like eight or nine, uh, something like Mm -hmm. that. I think I had him at eight on my most recent board uh, or my most recent mock draft. Uh, I personally have him at number three on my board because what he does bring to the table is he is 
about as well-rounded of an offensive big man prospect as I can remember entering the draft. He is uh, a very high level shooter who I think is going to be able to stretch his uh, uh, range beyond the NBA three point line relatively easily, just given how quick the release is, how smooth the release is, uh, just kind of everything portends that that's not going to be a problem in the mid range area off of screens. He's just really, really good at uh, finding his open teammates, both on the move and uh, out of the post as well. Whenever teams dis- or whenever Dayton decided to post him up, obviously, you know, I, I don't know that I need to say much about the high flying leaping ability other than to say, I think his body control and his hands are exceptional. Uh, you know, everyone just brings up the explosiveness in terms of his uh, ability to get like 43 inches off the ground whenever he's jumping. Uh, it's it's yeah. even more than that, I think. It's the fact that he can adjust his body in midair, can catch almost everything, and can finish kind of all in one fell swoop. Uh, he is really just kind of an exceptional pick and roll big man for the way that the NBA is going. And uh, obviously you're going to be able to space him out uh, as a spot up threat. If you want to use another guy in pick and roll options, because he can shoot uh, the passing ability and the unselfishness is really going to portend well to playing with other ball handlers. Like he doesn't need the ball all the time, but is good with the ball in his hands. Uh, it's, it's really just kind of exactly what every team is looking for offensively from uh, in NBA big man. And then defensively, like I said, I'm a little bit uh, higher on him being able to get to like a league average level, even if he's not necessarily going to be a a star on the defensive end necessarily. So uh, I think that you're talking about maybe you can get to a league average offense or league average defensive player. And then like, I think the upside is legitimately like 20 point per game offensive scorer uh, that can pass it and play unselfishly and really help his teammates. Uh, create other open looks. So yeah, I I think that that guy in a draft class that is relatively weak uh, probably should go, you know, somewhere in the top five. uh, And I think certainly will go somewhere in the top 10. Yeah. You brought up a couple of points that I think will translate very well to him being a good player in the NBA. The passing ability is number one. Um, he, I tone him to a hockey player a lot where he knows what he wants to do with the ball before it hits his hands. And, and it's just hockey players tend to have the best view of what is going on around them because they have to make quick decisions to get rid of the puck, right? And Obi was the exact same way. Since he knew the double was coming a lot, he had to get the ball and get it out quickly or turn quickly and get to the bucket. And he did that extremely well. Um, number two is the shooting ability NBA game. I don't have to tell you this. It's all about spacing and he can space the floor in the NBA game because he can pop out and shoot third point that you brought up on your podcast, uh, this past week was about his age. Uh, he's not a sophomore. I mean, he's a 22 year old man. If he had gone through a logical progression and been recruited at the same time as everybody else, he would have gone through four years of college already, but he went through prep school, then he went through a redshirt year, and then he played two in college. So it's easy for people to forget that he's a 22-year-old guy. He's supposed to be here right now, age-wise. Um, but with all of that said, you take a look at a lot of these teams and, and their needs going into the draft. Obviously, right now at the time of this recording, we don't have the luxury of knowing what the draft lottery is and what the order is moving forward. But where does he fit best? Because I have tend to lean towards a team like the Warriors that are already set up and just need that one last piece. I don't think that Obi is going to shine all that well if he goes to a team like, say, 
I'll throw crap one out like the Magic or the Cavs. Um, you know, those teams still have a lot of building to do. And I think that he'll kind of get bogged down by how much building they have to do and want to do too much and be the focal point. So where do you see him fitting in best in the NBA? What teams, you know, do you have on your list? Yeah, I think we can just kind of run through the lottery. I think Golden State would be a great fit as well. Um, you know, the, the ability to play him next to Draymond Green, I think would work really well. They'd get him into really positive advantage situations regularly. Cleveland, they don't really have a guard to get him the ball and deliver it to him. Uh, he's not really a guy that's necessarily going to create his own shot off the bounce regularly, I don't think, in the NBA. He's more of a play finisher as opposed to a play creator. He certainly creates plays through his speed and off-ball movement without the ball. But in terms of on-ball prowess, I, I don't really see him being elite in that regard. So, you know, I, I can see a case for Cleveland as they continue to build out their roster, but I don't love him necessarily, uh, you know, with Colin Sexton and Darius Garland, if we're talking about purely from his standpoint. Minnesota, uh, you know, if they're willing to play Carl Towns as more of a space-up, attack, closeout big man, uh, as opposed to like a pick-and-roll big man, I would understand that, and I think it's an interesting fit, but that would worry me defensively. Atlanta doesn't really make sense because they have Clint Capella and John Collins already. Detroit doesn't really make a ton of sense because they have Blake Griffin. Depending on what they want to do with Blake long term, uh, I think you could maybe make a case, but I don't really see that as being a great fit defensively yet. The Knicks is interesting. That's where I placed them in my most recent mock draft. Uh, they have Mitchell Robinson, who could really help him out as a rim protector on the interior. Uh, but Mitchell is also kind of an elite level rim runner, and you have to involve him in ball screens. So you're going to take either him or Mitchell Robinson out of the screening action. And that doesn't seem like the best way to get the most out of either of those guys. Wendell Carter uh, pairing with him in Chicago, if they decided to move Lowry Markinen. Uh, because he's going to have to be paid uh, after next season, I think is going to be mm-hmm. a relatively interesting spot that I think makes some sense, but it would require that decision to move Markinen. Charlotte doesn't really have the center yet. They have a bunch of forwards in Miles Bridges and PJ Washington. I don't know that I would prioritize Obi Toppin there. Washington just drafted Rui Achimura last year. I don't really see them going down that road this year. Uh, they do really mm-hmm. value spacing, and I think they'd be a little bit more willing to play him at the five, but uh Again, I'm a little bit hesitant to do that regularly at the next level. And then Phoenix at 10, it depends on what you think of DeAndre Ayton as a potential floor spacing option long-term. He improved a lot defensively this year and really got to the point where I think he's going to be a good rim protector uh, and already is a pretty good rim protector. It really would require him to be a floor spacer. And I don't know that I love the fit uh, necessarily in the top 10 uh, with Phoenix there because... Yeah, I think that you're kind of taking either DeAndre Ayton or Obi Toppin out of the screening action, and that doesn't make a ton of sense to me. The best spots are like Dallas, I think, would be incredible. Uh, Putting him next to Kristaps Porzingis, who's already acting as an incredible floor spacer. The way they use Dwight Powell is incredible, in my opinion. Um, Just as acting as a screener and roller for Luka Doncic, that... Rick Carlisle would get the most out of Obi Toppin, I think. There's no question there. Uh, Indiana, I think, would make a lot of sense next to Miles Turner. And uh, I think I also mentioned Milwaukee as well as a team that would make a lot of sense because uh, they already have Brooke Lopez, uh, you know, Giannis Antetokounmpo. I think you could realistically play um, Obi Toppin next to Giannis, but you probably wouldn't want to do that, I guess. So maybe not Milwaukee, but the idea of playing him next to someone like Brooke Lopez, who's a spacer and rim protector, I think is the biggest key. Yeah, and I, I've said myself that getting him next to a true five center um, is probably his best 
you know, path to success. Um, certainly appreciate your insight on the whole matter. I know you've been talking to Obi to death over the last two days. So I wanted to add on a little bit and, you know, get this content out to Dayton Flyers fans specifically. Um, so thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Uh, one last question I had for you before I let you go. Uh, Jalen Crutcher is announcing his return to Dayton soon, soon, uh, hasn't done it yet, but he's back on campus and, and playing, um, playing with the guys back in Dayton, Ohio. Had he surfaced on your draft board at all? Because we heard some rumblings towards the middle of the spring that he was getting a serious look, was working out with John Morant. Um, let the listeners, you know, behind the curtain a little bit. Was he actually seriously considered to getting drafted this year? I think that team certainly did some due diligence on him. And, mm-hmm. uh, it, you know, I, I certainly don't think that NBA teams are taking it for granted now that he's going to return necessarily. Uh, they're probably still doing some due yeah. diligence. Um you know, I think that where ultimately teams were most concerned was OB, as I kind of wrote about in this column that I wrote today, OB just drew so much attention to yep. everything that he did and defense has really just had to account for where he was at all times. So I think the teams were just kind of wondering how much help did Jalen get by playing next to Obi Toppin uh, in terms of just getting more open shots, getting more space to operate. Uh, I'm intrigued by Jalen Crutcher. He kind of got on to the bottom of my top 100 uh, by the end of this process with guys kind of returning to school and everything. I think he would have a like semi-realistic shot at a two-way contract if he would decide to go pro this year. Um, if he doesn't decide to go pro, that's great. Um, yeah, I, I think that he could really help himself next year by proving that what he did this year was not necessarily a product of Obi Toppin, but, uh, you know, his ability to be a shot maker off the pull up, uh, his ability to make plays for his teammates is a pretty good live dribble passer. I think all of that stuff really, uh, you know, stands out to teams as they look through his, uh, his potential as an NBA player. But, you know, at the end of the day, I kind of think he might just be, you know, he might just be a guy, but I I think the teams just aren't real sure yet what he is because of uh, the situation. See, that was fun. I told you that was going to be fun. Uh, next conversation coming up is with Matt Babcock, and um, truth be told, 2020 is really turning my brain into mush. I was wholly convinced that I had done that interview with Sam in May, and I did that interview with Sam in mid-July. 2020 is just, it's so shitty that I, I have no earthly concept of when things took place in this year, because every day is just the same as the one before, and you can't go anywhere or do anything. Um, so anyways, the Matt Babcock interview, uh, happened actually in May, May 27th to be exact. So this is the first one that I did, uh, to, to kind of kick off the draft talk when we actually thought the draft was going to take place, you know, in the normal time in June. And then of course got moved back and moved back again, and then moved back again. And here we are in April, still waiting for the draft. So rest assured, we're going to get to it. If you'd like to follow Matt, he's at Matt Babcock 11 on Twitter and has a really impressive background. His whole family's in basketball, been in the NBA for years. He was an agent. He'll tell you here coming up that he sat on a lot of different sides of the table. So uh, without further ado, let's get right to it. Here's my conversation with Matt Babcock talking about the draft. 
11 or at Babcock, Bab, BabcockHoops.com. Matt, that was a lot harder to say than I thought it was going to be initially when I started that introduction, but welcome to the program. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Uh, I, I thought this was a great time to get together. Um, obviously, still in quarantine, still without sports. Um, but you know, with the NBA draft coming up, I'm sure you have plenty to talk about this time of year, right? Yeah, no, we, we do. I mean, I, you know, we're all kind of waiting to see when the actual draft will, will happen. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's probably unlikely that the uh, the original set date will, will, will stay intact. But uh, hey, we'll we'll see. What's the latest been from the NBA on the draft? I mean, I'm assuming they're going to try and use a blueprint similar to what the NFL did in April, right? Yeah, I mean, I think everything is uh, is still on the table. I mean, their 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 main priority right now is figuring out if they could finish the season, and uh, so I, I don't I don't think anything will be decided until they kind of get that set. Um, you know, I, I we're all expecting the draft to be pushed back. I mean, I, I just think with you know with it looking like they're at least going to make a strong attempt to finish the season. Uh, I just don't see them having a draft while uh, while there's games still to be played. It just would kind of really mess with uh, protocols with trades, draft night, and you know when's free agency going to be. And um, you know I think they're going to push it back. And then also uh, I, I would imagine they're trying going to try and do some kind of combine, if even just to get uh, medical information from from some of these guys. You see, this is why I get good, insightful guests on the show. Matt predicted everything, exactly, pretty much exactly how it happened. The NBA waited until the end of their season to announce when they would be pushing back the date. They did, in fact, have an NBA combine, and in mid-September, the NBA announced that basically they were just going to do like a virtual session where everybody just had Zoom calls so you could interview them. Oh, how's his mother? How's his family? Blah, blah, blah. And then they eventually set the draft date for the one that we know, November 18th. So all those things that Matt said, they all happened. We got pushed back twice, and here we are. All right, let's get back to it. Yeah, and the thing that I thought was really interesting to consider right now is what not only what happens this year, but what happens to the NBA calendar moving forward. And just for our listeners, the level set here, you know, I was thinking of a world where the NBA season gets pushed back a few months, and then all of a sudden you see the next season starting up at Christmas, and then the finals next year are in August. Do you see that as like a logical scenario to how this plays out in the aftermath? I do. Um, I, I mean, there's been a number of people that have, have sort of pushed for that anyway. You know, it kind of gets uh, gets NBA away from the NFL a little bit, so there's not quite as much overlap. Um, and so, I, yeah, I think if that's what happens, which it's looking like that's what's going to be, uh, you know, I, I would bet they roll with it. So, I mean, again, I, I think there's so many so many questions unanswered right now. Um, but you know, it's it's an interesting time. Well, on my side of the table, I mean, my listeners know that I focus heavily on college basketball and not so much on the NBA. So I try to, you know, play both sides of the coin without knowing as much about both sides. Right. And the way that I see the the roadblocks popping up here is that the college game is going to be so adversely affected that the NBA is really going to have to take some steps to mitigate that. Because if you're talking about a season in the NBA that's going to start in Christmas, that means that you have college players coming out in March and April. They're going to have to sit for the better part of six months plus before they're playing meaningful, meaningful basketball again. Right. So I feel like the onus does fall on the NBA to kind of consider that playing out and not leaving college players out to dry. Right. You know, I, I, I don't think the NBA will make that a high priority. I mean, at the end of the day, this is a big business and it's, if it's generating, generating viewers, generating money, uh, that that is first and foremost. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. w- whether that sounds harsh or not, that's the reality of what we're looking at with with, with uh, major pro sports. Uh, the, the biggest concern I have with that gap would be for agents. I mean, because you know, from the point 
that uh, a player is done with his, you know, his eligibility in college until he gets drafted. Um, you know, the training, housing, that's all put on agents. And so, I mean, that's, that's a long time for agents taking care of guys uh, that, that could change, uh, change the, the outlook of, uh, you know, agents and who they're recruiting and whatnot, you know, tremendously. So to back up briefly, um, your background and you're looking through this specifically in the lens of an agent, whereas, of course, I'm looking at in the lens of a guy that's uh, had a podcast mic and a website for a little bit. But uh, let's back up and give uh, the people a little bit of your background because of, you know, you looking through this lens. So um, you're a former contributor to SI, but before that, you were an agent for, what, 11 years, right? Yeah, so I, I uh, just to give you my full background, just briefly. Uh, so I, I was born to a basketball family. My dad, my two uncles have all worked in the NBA since the late seventies. Got two cousins that are coaches in the NBA. Always thought I was going down that path, and then when I got out of college, um, I pretty much was just going with with whatever jobs I was offered in in basketball, and uh, you know, kind of just fell into the agency business and worked for a number of different companies, including uh, some some companies I launched myself. Uh, and did it for 11 years and decided to get out and get back closer to sort of my family roots and, you know, watching games and evaluating players. And so here I am. <laughs> here you are. And thankfully on our show to give us a better perspective into what happens after the college season is over. Uh, because like I said, I kind of always um, not so much pigeonholed, but I just have a very specific frame of reference when I look at these things, because my world or how I consider the year is typically under the college basketball umbrella. Whereas now um, we're in the rare air as Dayton Flyers fans, where we get to kind of see the other side of the curtain and what happens uh, when guys like Obi graduate from Dayton and then take that next step. So you mentioned as an agent that this is kind of like, um, I don't want to say a hot period, but a busy period trying to understand you know, what the few, what the next few months look like and then setting your client up for success right in the NBA draft and beyond. So once the college year ends, and I guess this year ended rather abruptly, what comes next as far as the player and the agent leading up to the draft? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the imminent, uh, steps would be, you know, you get, you get your player, um, you know, settled, you know, as far as housing for, you know, a couple of months until the draft and, and get them working with, uh, with a trainer, uh, preparing for individual workouts. And, you know, if the if they attend the combine, uh, this year is obviously extremely unique. I mean, all mm -hmm. these players are still training. So the agents are still on the hook for that, but I mean, what are they, what are they training for? Who knows? Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and, and when's that going to be? And, um, I, I've had a number of agents talk to me about that and just sort of express their frustrations of, Hey man, we're, we're having to pay for all this. And I, I'm not sure what, what we're preparing for. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's just, you know, I, 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 you know, I worked in that business for 11 years, never dealt with anything quite like this. And I'm, you know, be quite honest. I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm not an agent right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I, I think that, um, you know, the, the thing that people have to keep in mind, right? And, and this is honestly probably the biggest um, negative of this whole scenario is that nobody has the playbook, right? You can't lean on someone else to say, what did you do in this scenario when you came across it? Because we're all navigating these waters for the first time. So everybody's input, I think, is valid. But at the same time, I'm sure you have a lot of agents scratching their heads as to like, what do we do now, right? No, for sure. I mean, everybody's just kind of winging it. And, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, media members covering the draft or agents or players or or even teams, I mean, no, nobody's really quite sure what to do or what to expect. And it's just, I mean, every every single day, it kind of seems like the, the narrative changes as far as, uh, you know, what the rumors are at the league office. And um, yeah, just again, I mean, I know I'm being a broken record here, but just crazy weird times. <laughs>
<laughs> you know, when I started to do this episode, I knew it was going to be fun to look back at some quotes of things that we talked about months ago. And I find myself laughing that this conversation is still relevant right here on this day in November where executives are just winging it. We're trying to figure out day by day where we're going, how we're going to deal with the pandemic. And you know, here we are in mid-November. We don't even have the next season out yet for the NBA. So I just had to laugh at Matt's comment because it still holds true so many months later. Uh, I'm going to shorten this up for my next statement. Uh, I asked uh, Matt what draft night was going to be like for Obi because as a top 10 pick, you know, your night is a lot different than a guy that might be taken in the second round late. Um, obviously, with a normal draft, this would have been more pertinent, but it's a different year. But here's Matt's answer. Let's get back into it. Yeah, so I mean, how it works is uh, for draft night, there's, there's usually 15 to 20 guys that are invited to the green room at the draft in New York. Uh, Obi will certainly be part of that group, and so it'll be him and his family, probably uh, probably Coach Grant, his agent. They'll all sit at a table, wait for his name to be called, and go up on stage and, and shake Adam Silver's hand. And so, I mean, I would expect uh, it to be an extremely exciting night for Obi, as I don't, I don't see him getting out of the top five. Is that kind of been since, what, December, probably the turn of the year? Obi's been like a top five guy, or has he kind of climbed up in your mock draft as the season has gone along? I mean, it's it's sort of been a, an ongoing joke all year that I've been kind of leading leading the train as far as pumping him up, and uh, it seems <laughs> like on the program matter, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it seems uh, it seems like everybody, for the most part, is caught up, with, you know, with me, and it sort of you know, sort of like the, my progression from an evaluation standpoint with Obi is uh, I, I was really intrigued with him last year. I, I didn't see them in person, uh, but I watched a lot of film and. Um, I thought he was very intriguing, and uh, it, it was interesting that he, he didn't get invited to the combine last year, which I, you know, obviously was a, a huge, uh, huge mistake by NBA teams. And so I went into the season having him projected as a as a first round pick, and uh, you know some of those early games watching on film, I, I gradually started moving him up, and um, I had I went to Maui. And I had him at number 13, if I remember correctly. And I remember I joked with uh, Mike Schmitz from ESPN, who was also there. And I said, hey, I, I need this topping kid to, to perform. I got my neck on the line for him. And um, <laughs> after that first game, he came walking by. We came, you know, high-fiving each other. And, um, you know, he just – that whole week, I mean, he just blew up in front of all of our eyes. And essentially the entire NBA. I mean, I think every mm -hmm. single team had had a scout or representative there. And uh, I, I don't think there was one person in attendance that didn't think this guy is a surefire top 10 pick. And um, you know, as you know, I mean, just had such an exciting, fun season. And, um, it's really nice to see a, you know, sort of an underdog kind of step into the spotlight and shine like that. And, um, yeah, I think he's got a bright future and the answer to question draft night is going to be a lot of fun for him. Yeah. That Maui tournament must've been great for guys like yourself in the NBA scouting business, because you had, you know, as a you had dots in there for Kansas. You obviously had, um, what Michigan state was there this year. Then you had OB at Dayton. You had Anthony Edwards at Georgia. I mean, you guys just really had a great field to take a look at, right? Oh, it was incredible. And that, that was the first time I had been to Maui and, uh, you know, just, you know, sort of like, uh, you know, almost like a big high school gym really. And, um, it was great. I, mean, I sat, you know, they gave me a media pass and I had a seat saved for me, but I, I, I would normally just go sit right behind Jay Billis or Bill Walton, like in the first row. And so, I mean, I had, you know, top notch seed watching high level basketball, you know, Obi put on a show, Anthony Edwards. It, it was probably the best event I had ever been to. Yeah, and there's there's like a uniqueness to it that you just can't describe, right? Like playing in that high school gym, but also playing like college basketball at the highest level in this like 
not like a rural setting, but I guess it's kind of fair to say that like you're kind of in the just in the middle of an island in the ocean, in the middle of nowhere. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's something to be said for just the uniqueness of Maui every year and how it's around Thanksgiving, you know. Oh, it's no doubt. I mean, if, you know, depending on, on the field each year, I'm going to try and go as much as I can. And, uh, and, and this year was really great. The fan, the fans traveled well. I mean, the Dayton fans, as you know, are, are awesome. Uh, and then you throw KU fans in there, Michigan state. It was, uh, every game was a lot of fun. Yeah. They keep this program humming along. So I can definitely speak to the Dayton fans and our level of support. Um, cause they, they've been kind to us as well. Um, but yeah, I mean that, you know, that tournament, and I say this all the time and I'm glad that we can kind of come back to it at, after the season's over, but I kept harping on this to our listeners, um, especially for a program like us, we're not in the national spotlight a great deal that when you get on Maui and play the way that Dayton did, we put the nation on alert, you know, immediately and not, you know, not just Obi, but the whole team. I mean, that was when we came home, Dayton had a top 25 ranking and they never lost it, obviously finishing the na- finishing the year third in the nation. But you see the kind of bump that your program and Obi got just after that tournament because it was on national TV and it's during the Thanksgiving week. And I think that's why Maui, they, they've called it the Maui bump, right? But it's real, like the amount of attention that gets ratcheted up because you play well in Maui, it lasts throughout the college year and it's lasting now until you know the NBA draft process and, and kind of you know paying dividends for Obi, right? Because I, I remember you had said that he came out, uh, obviously didn't get invited to the combine last year, came back to school and now it's really paid dividends for his draft stock, right? Oh yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, for Obi and, and for, for the, their team, I mean, the, the big stage of Maui definitely propelled them. You know I mean? That, that's what really set things up for Obi to kind of get the national attention that he, that he has all year. And same thing with their team. And, uh, obviously the star power with, with Obi is, uh, is drawn a lot of interest, but I mean, I, I think Crutcher had a terrific year and, um, and, and Anthony Grant is about as good as it gets as a coach. I mean, I, I think he is very impressive. I mean, their team really plays the right way. They play with a great pace. They move the ball. Um, just, yeah, I, I can't say enough you know, nice things about, about what he's got going on there. It's been said a lot that Obi should have a very easy transition into the NBA because Anthony Grant runs such an NBA-like system on the floor. Do you think that that sentiment holds water right now? I do, and for a number of reasons. And one thing, one thing with Obi that I think gets overlooked is that okay, he, he is a star and he's dynamic. And you know, I'm sure all the the Flyers fans were were watching ESPN closely to see what his big time dunks were for every game, right? But um, you know, he, he's a team player. He, he does not force the issue. Um, you know, they didn't really run him a whole lot, but he was effective and efficient. And that's something that's going to help him early on in his career because he may step into a situation where he's not, you know, the first or even second best player on the team. Uh, but I think, you know, if you, you know, step in, play the exact same way he did at Dayton and be effective. Yeah. So when did you first notice or let's let's be more specific. Last year, you said he kind of jumped on your radar. What initially jumped off the page of you when you were watching film? Because the the, the unta- or the uh, intangible characteristics you just mentioned, like being a team player, I certainly know that and can vouch for it for OB and Dayton fans. But when you're watching film, you don't have that perspective yet. So what was the first thing last year that really jumped off the page about his game? Well, uh, two things. I think the combination of his, uh, you know, dynamic athleticism uh, for one. I mean, it's it just incredibly uncanny how athletic he is for being a guy that's six foot nine, uh, yeah. but also being able to shoot the ball from outside. I mean, I think he shot over fifty percent from three last year, and yep. so I mean, just just those two things alone with the game, the, the way the game's played in the NBA now, um, you know, makes him an intriguing prospect. And 
you know, for him to kind of come back this year and, and do those things at an incredibly higher level. Um, I mean, I just, I, I can't imagine anybody that knows the NBA not being excited about him as a prospect. Absolutely. So let's, let's flip it to the other side of things. Um, you know, what are the weaknesses in his game and what do you feel personally that, you know, he has to improve upon, you know, in, in your expert analysis, if you will. You know, he's a terrific athlete. He's a little bit more of a north-south athlete rather than east-west. And what I mean by that is, you know, his lateral movements aren't aren't real fluid. And so on the defensive end, if he's playing power forward, um, you know, a lot of times these teams are playing guys that play a little bit more on the, on the perimeter. You know, I think he needs to improve his lateral quickness and just overall defense. Um, I, I don't think it's necessarily a huge issue, uh, but that's definitely the area, uh, you know, he, he can improve on. And you had in your latest mock draft him going third uh, to Minnesota. You said that you don't see him falling out of the top ten. You know, is there any even chance in your mind that that he falls, you know, out of the top five? You know, I think this year that there's so much parity with these these. Uh, I've got like six or seven guys in my first year, and mm-hmm. uh, I, I think it's they're all pretty close as far as talent and upside goes. Uh, the, the the draft order is going to make a, a big difference where guys go. And so, I mean, mm-hmm. I think Obi could even be considered with the number one pick, depending on who's who's picking, or he could, you know, slip to five or, you know, somewhere around there. But uh, I, I don't I, – I think what I said is I don't think he gets out of the top five. I think mm-hmm. he's somewhere around five is the latest he'll go. Yeah, and, and I was considering that myself um, because we did a little bit of a draft talk in our last episode. Where we just kind of talked about, all right, here's three teams that I think he could go to. But then, you know, when I'm drilling into it, I'm looking at team needs. You, know, you start to realize that this is an entirely um, it's it's an it's an entire crapshoot, right? It could be anywhere, and mm-hmm. so it could be anywhere because of team needs. You know, where do you think he fits the best? That's probably the biggest gap that I have is understanding the personnel and the teams that could possibly draft him. Okay, now see, this is why we did the episode this way. Everything that Matt is about to say was pure speculation on his part. He's going to tell you where OB fits the best. But again, I'm going to run through it. He was guessing. We don't have to guess anymore. Here's a draft order. Minnesota, Golden State, Charlotte, Chicago. Then you got Cleveland, Atlanta, Detroit, New York Knicks, Wizards, Suns. That's one through ten right there. So keep that in mind as Matt is talking because his picks were guessed and we don't have to guess anymore. Okay, back to it. Well, right now I'm going number three to Minnesota. I think it's a perfect fit. I mean, they could put him right next to uh, Carl Anthony Towns, let him play the power forward. I mean, some people are hyping him up, saying he could play a lot of minutes as a, as an under undersized small ball five. I I like I'd like to see him play the bulk of his minutes at the power forward position. Um, and so, I mean, I think Golden State would take a look at him. I don't think it's a perfect fit, you know, just because I think it would be an extremely small lineup. Um, I know Cleveland likes him, which I'm, I'm assuming. Dayton fans would be all for that. Keep keeping them, you know keeping them local, right? And yeah. um, let's see here. I, you know, New York could take a look at them. I, I think if Phoenix or, or San Antonio were to move up, those would be good fits. But uh, Minnesota is the one uh, I, I think would be a perfect fit all ways around. I was certainly saying the same thing last uh, last show on that exact same point you made. I think that when you put him next to a true center, uh, that's really where he's going to shine in the NBA because you said it, and I know that all the Flyer fans know it, but Obi was so good this year because we didn't have to have a true center. And he really shined because anybody in the lineup could shoot the three. And, and frankly, you know, four, three out of the three out of the five guys on the floor could rebound effectively, which allowed him to do a lot of different things. And Dayton didn't really cla- crash the offensive glass, which I could see as a problem going into the NBA when, you know, an NBA coach wants you to, to work a little bit harder on the offensive glass. Um, 
you know, talking about that, what have you seen recently in guys that have struggled to take the next step from the college game to the NBA game? You know, I, I mean, I think uh, it depends on the player, but I mean, it's definitely a huge, a huge conversation point when we're evaluating players is how do they translate? And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, this is why we a lot of times we look at positional size, you know, I mean, you know, stepping up to the next level, every position is bigger, stronger and faster. And so, I mean, if there are issues with, you know, uh, an undersized guy, a lot of times it doesn't translate that well. I mean, this year there's a number uh, there's a number of guards, uh, for, you know, one that stands out is Marcus Howard from, from Marquette, who's uh I mean, for four years, it's just lit up college basketball. I mean, I think he averaged almost yep. 28 points a game this year. Yep. Uh, I, I I don't even think he's going to get drafted. I mean, he might no, I mean, drafted. he shoots the ball like 30 times a game. <laughs> right. I mean, he's a, they list him at 5'11", 180, uh, but he's essentially a shooting guard. And so, I mean, he's severely undersized, not a point guard. You know, does it translate well? I, I don't think so. Uh, but, there, you know, there's a lot of guys like that. Um, with Obi. I think he translates perfectly. And so that's, that's one way, you know, we look kind of look at things is, you know, sometimes guys end up being better pros than they are college players just because you know, positional size, athleticism, different skill sets uh, fit differently. Uh, and so, you know, with Obi, um, all, all the stuff he does, you know, has NBA scouts drooling. Now let's ask the uh, million-dollar annoying question that's been floating around on Dayton Twitter waves. Do you think that the level of competition that Dayton played this past year is going to hurt Obi in any way? I don't. I mean, I you know again, I, I was at I was at Maui watching him go against the top schools in the country. <laughs> yeah, he didn't, he didn't struggle at all, and uh, I I don't see it being a problem. I mean, I think you know from an evaluation standpoint, as far as looking at his film and conference play, you know they did play him a lot as a small ball five. So, I mean, you need to kind of be creative, you know, as far as like how does he translate to the next level. But, I mean, you got to remember, you know, all these general managers are all very well, you know, prepared basketball people. And they, they could see through the lines and all that. And um, I, I don't think it's going to hurt them. Yeah, I had to ask because that was a um, a talking point on Twitter whenever he won a lot of, well, pretty much all of the awards over Luca Garza. And, you know, the Iowa fans on Twitter, just you know, the usual suspects are always like, oh, well, look at the competition that he played. Well, you know, I mean, it's not like he's playing chumps in the A-10. I mean, certainly it's not the Big Ten. But just to your point, when you saw them out in Maui, the only thing that he really had trouble with was guarding Azabuki, but he'd never be asked to do that in the NBA. You know, there's a true right. center on the roster that would be tasked to do something like that. Um, so I, I had to ask, and it, it was more kind of, um, you know, in a joking manner just because of that's always been kind of, um, I don't, I don't want to say a dumb joke, but it's just like one of those talking points fans have, you know, like, oh, he plays in a lesser conference. Like he's not going to be good in the NBA. But I mean, you've seen it over the last five years. You're having more and more guys see success at the NBA level out of the mid-major college ranks. Do you happen to know like why that is or why we're starting to see more guys out of mid-majors be successful at the next level? I think it's just circumstantial. Obviously, you know, John Morant was the big name last year, come from Murray State. And, um, you know, I, I don't think it, there's necessarily a trend going or anything like that. I think it's just sort of uh, just sort of happened that way. And, um, you know, and, and going to the, the smaller school, you know, mid-majors, uh, as far as how we're evaluating draft prospects, you know, I, I think it is a good question. I mean, we ask ourselves that and we talk, you know, among our, ourselves as a staff. Um, you know, is this something of concern? And, and just with OB, I don't think it is, but sometimes it is. Um, and then another thing I wanted to bring up is you brought up Garza. You know, that's a perfect example of a guy who's a big time college player that doesn't translate that well is, mm-hmm. uh, 
you know, his foot speed, he's just, he's just so slow. And uh, yeah. I, I think he's going to have a hard time in, in the NBA keeping up with quick guards. And, you know, it's a very spread game and a lot of high pick and rolls. And, um, yeah, I mean, he put his name in the draft. I expect him to go back to school, and he, he may or may not ever play in the NBA. Yeah, so l- let's drill into that for a second because I know that that is actually one thing that's very common at Dayton is guys that go get evaluated. Right now, Jalen Crutcher is still has his name out in the draft. Uh, I expect it to be taken out very soon here, as in Ibby Watson was the same way with Dayton. Um, but in a guy like Garza's case, or like even Jalen Crutcher being specific to the team that I'm covering, um, you know, is that always valuable for guys to get that feedback? Because it seems like from the from the looking glass that it's a no brainer always for guys to go get draft feedback and then come back to college, right? Yeah, no, I think it's a good thing. I mean, I, I promote guys to test the waters, but do it responsibly. And uh, I mean, the you know they, they've got it now where you can you can even sign an agent that's certified by by the NCAA, uh, where they can help you know do some work and gather information for you. So I, I think it's uh, it's harmless. Uh, I mean, as long as you do it the right way. And so I mean, like with Crutcher, I, I you know I, I think it's a good thing. And um, worst case scenario, he gets a few, some feedback and you know knows some stuff he could work on, and hopefully has an even better year next year. Yeah, because that's precisely the situation that Obi found himself in, where I thought that he had that NBA talent, right? And you said yourself, you kind of picked up on him. um, And then more people heard about him, and it was harder because he played for Dayton, so not as many people are going to watch our games that are national writers. And then you know that extra year in school ended up benefiting him. And I tend to think that that's still going to be the case more often than it's going to hurt players to come back to school. But I know that over the last few years, there's been a lot of guys that have hurt their draft stock. Um, But it seems to me now that it hasn't become as prevalent because the first opportunity the guys have to go to the draft, they kind of are doing it now, right? It's definitely going on a lot. I don't think it's entirely new. I mean, it's all, you know, anytime a player or parents have the opportunity to become millionaires, that's intriguing. You know, it's hard. It's hard to turn down a bunch of money, especially, you know, with a lot of these players. Uh, you know, coming from rough, rough backgrounds without much money. And you know, if it's an opportunity, I mean, if you're a first round pick, I mean, you're, you're guaranteeing yourself, you know, multiple millions of dollars. And, um, you know, it's it, it can be a little scary going back to school. There's a lot of what ifs. And uh, yeah, so I mean, you know, I, I understand the itch from from these players and, and again, the parents um, and it, it's happening more. And obviously, there, there's other, you know, other outlets, too, of guys even skipping school now and going to Australia. We got the G League thing going on. Um, and so, I mean, you know, if there's opportunities to, to sort of skip some steps and make some money, I think it's always going to be uh, intriguing to people. Yeah, and we've started to touch on that briefly on this program about how the NBA is now paying the top players to go to that like G League school or whatever. And that's going to be a pretty sweet deal for like 10 to 15 guys per year, right? But there was all these people that were crying from the hills like, oh, it's going to be the death of college basketball. This is the end. It's like, no, well, no, nothing's ever going to change because, you know, guys are still going to want free educations. They're still going to want to play on national television a couple times a week. And, you know, the, the NBA is not going to be inviting all these kids, you know, 50, 100 kids a year. I mean, we're talking about the best of the best and college basketball is maybe missing out on, you know, 10 kids per season. So I don't see that as like a huge hindrance to college basketball. I don't know if that sentiment was kind of different on your side of the fence. No, I don't think it's going to you know uh, you know play a major major factor in, in college basketball. I mean, you know, with the G League, they've got four guys committed. 
Uh, and I think they're done for this year. I mean, I think long-term it could be a situation where you're looking at more of like 10 to 15 type guys that they have multiple teams and sort of like their own division, which they've, they've discussed. Um, but, you know, I mean, one thing to keep in mind is they, they you know, the, before the age limit was set for the draft, you know, there was a handful of guys out of high school going, going to the NBA draft anyway. And that, that yeah. really didn't play that big of a factor in college basketball. And um, I mean, I do think, uh, you know, paying players, I mean, you know, cutting into school's revenue, that could change the outlook. But as far as like the age limit or guys skipping out of school, I, I don't think that's going to be a big deal. No, I don't either. Um, the, the real trickle down effect of paying the players, just like you said, is what the deficit is in athletic departments. And you're already seeing how some of these schools are operating like right on the line of profitability because they've already cut sports due to coronavirus. Now, if you consider what the impact would be taking millions of dollars out of an athletic budget to put it into track and field or what have you, you can start to see how that trickle down is going to hurt college athletics. And so I've been the first person to say, Hey, paying players all great. Making money off your likeness is great, but we have to have a system in place before that actually comes to fruition. Because if we don't, it'll be absolute chaos. It'll be school to school and conference to conference and not that the NBA has to worry about this kind of stuff. But I think that is something that could really rock college basketball when you have like a, you know, not to compare it to coronavirus, but like all the States making up their own laws. I mean, we'd have a system similar to that on a much more minor scale, but it would be everybody making up their own rules as to how, how you pay players. And I think that would be like truly detrimental to the game overall. Yeah. I mean, the, the one thing to, to keep in mind though, is that it is already chaos. It's just mm-hmm. all done. It's not all done behind the scenes under you know, the I mean, table. It, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just, I mean, all, all these big programs, not every single one, but I mean, for the most part, you know, these big, these big, big prospects are, are getting taken care of uh, some way somehow. And so, I mean, it's messy and that they definitely need to address all these things. Um, and, and I really think, I mean, if they, if they end up opening up, uh, you know, revenue from, from the athletic departments, I mean, really where, you know, it's, you know, these schools are going to suffer is all the other sports, you know, Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, tennis and soccer and whatnot that aren't big money makers. Uh, and then it's just the football and basketball players are going to be, you know, taken care of, you know, and uh, I hate to see that, but at the same time, I mean, you know, if these players of these major sports are generating a lot of revenue, I, I think they probably should get paid, you know, something uh, and, and, you know, have it be balanced out a little bit more, but um it's a, it's a messy, messy deal, and I'm glad it's not my job to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, you get to sit back and just kind of analyze all of right. this and, uh, from a nice, comfy seat, right? right. But, exactly. you know, I, I talk about this a lot on our program because, number one, I like people to be informed about stuff that they probably wouldn't seek out otherwise. And, and right now is a pretty good time for, you know, digesting information because of the times we live in, and there's not live sports anyway. But... Dayton is the poster child for the school that we are talking about that would be hurt the most because our B-balls, our basketball program is in the 99th percentile as far as dependency on basketball revenue to fund the rest of our athletic programs. Hmm. So if you think about now, I I obviously I can use a specific example here. If Millions were funded to Obi this year. They were funneled to Obi. Certainly no one in this program would bat an eyelash because of what he did. I mean, he put Dayton on nightly sports center like three times a week, which mm. it was incredible publicity, right? Mm. But if all that revenue is going to him, it's not going to the school. And I think Dayton was just like we we're talking about would be one of those schools that would be greatly impacted from a system like that. So I just try to tell people to like, keep it in mind because I know you want players to get paid. So do I, but I don't want like the demise of all mid majors under the power five conferences to happen as a result either. You know? Oh, oh absolutely. I mean, there's definitely going to be a give and take no, no matter how you split it. 
Um, and, and again, I, I don't know the answer, but I mean, it needs to be adjusted, you know, and um, you know, maybe it's not like, Hey, the player takes all the revenue. I, I think open up the doors to allowing these players get endorsement deals. Uh, that, that's, that's a really, really great step because that's, mm-hmm. that's money that um, isn't touching the, the school's revenue. You know, I mean, that's just, that's new endorsement deals just for that player, um, you know, allows, allows the player to make some money off his likeness, um, you know, without dipping into the athletic uh, department's you know, budget. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's why I think this first step is happening, you know, as a result of the clamoring for, you know, paying the players, because this is probably the easiest first step to take. And I think obviously it's probably the most feasible as well. Um, you certainly know the financial workings on the side of the draft. So um, give the listeners who probably don't have any context as far as when guys are drafted, what it costs them to go each spot downwards right because if you're drafted number one you're probably getting a a handful of million more than if you're drafted number 10 right but i actually i'm not gonna act like i'm informed i don't know how that breaks down yeah you know what i'm I'm gonna pull up the scale right now so so how it works is uh (laughs) perfect (laughs) they uh um, they, I can't remember when they did this exactly, but they put together a scale for first round picks. And so the f- number one pick makes the most money and it just trickles down all the way to the 30th pick. Um, and so for the number one pick this next year, there will be roughly $10 million from the team. Um, mm-hmm. and it, it goes all the way down, um, to 1.7 million, um, for the 30th pick. So, uh, obviously the higher you go, the more money you make. And so, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, as an, from an agent standpoint, I mean, like say if I were, I were representing OB, um, you know, if, if we're looking at the difference between the number one pick and the 10th pick, I'd say, hey, let's let's promote you going to the best fit. Don't worry about this money. The the, the long term money is really the goal here. We, you need a stepping stone. The money is going to be big no matter you know how we split it, uh, but you need to succeed in your career. And so, I mean, uh, and all the players and agents don't have too much influence on who takes them, um, you know, what, whatever, you know sort of approach and tone you're having with the teams, I would prioritize, uh, you know, where you can succeed as a basketball player, you know, regardless of the pick. And how long are the rookie contracts now? So it's two years guaranteed, uh, two year team option, and then you could do an extension uh, during that time. And so, I mean, you know, the NBA team essentially will have control uh, for at least five years because after, after the rookie contract, uh, you go to free agency, you're, you're a restricted free agent. Okay, so this brings up the last point that we have always heard about Obi. Um, right now, we're on with Matt Babcock talking draft Obi Toppin and the possible scenarios and finances that he could be dueled out in the first top ten picks. But the other knock that we've heard on Obi from draft analysts is that he he could slip a few spots down because of his age. Now we're sitting here saying that a team that drafts Obi is going to have five years of control. Obi's already 22 years old, so that means that we're they're basically getting him in his prime years. You know, do you think that that factors into GM's decisions of whether they're going to take him or not? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, I, I think uh, you know teams that you know, have a lot of money committed to other players, you know, getting some rookie contracts that can contribute, it gives them a lot of flexibility. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, so, I mean, if you've got, you've got a guy like Obi that could probably step in and be a starter and be one of the better players on a team next year, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, that, that adds a lot of value to him because you're, you're getting production uh, for cheap, you know, for, for a few years. But also it could 
it could work adversely against him with a team that's maybe rebuilding because you say, okay, well, we don't have to get a guy to put on the floor right now. Like we want to build for the next four or five years. Whereas a team that's in win now mode or is just missing one piece to help them in the playoffs, you know, they might be willing to take a jump up to go and grab him, right? Because he would be a piece to be very valuable if you're, let's say, you know, the A seed and you just need a couple of guys to come off and be supporters off your bench, right? Yeah, and I think uh, you, you bring up an interesting point is, is, you know, every team, you know, should value players differently depending on where they're at with their organization, what other players they have under contract. And, uh, you know, and it's, it, the draft's usually not about, okay, who can do what for us next year. It's usually a two- or three-year process. How do they fit into what we're, what we're doing? Um, you know, I mean, you know, very rarely is there a guy like Zion Williamson that could step in and, you know, be be a star guy, you know. And so, um, you know, and, and one thing with how I operate is I, I don't do a big board. Um, I, I think it only makes sense if you're working for one team because, the, you know, a big board essentially will be different for each team depending, you know, on their priorities and their depth chart and whatnot. And so I, I do um, I do positional rankings and then I do a mock draft because I, I make a decision for each team and it's really a different, different outlook you can pick. cut that interview off right there because frankly i care about you we're all in this together we're all flyers fans and i asked matt what the next you know month would hold and so you know we kind of went into that it's like oh you know we're not doing anything we're just kind of sitting around and we still are here sitting around months later but i had to cut it short because he went on to say how sorry he felt for all the players that had their seasons cut short and uh, how, you know, he wishes that Dayton Flyers could do it. You know, you know where he's going with that. We don't need to hear it anymore. We don't need your sympathy. For the rest of our Dayton Flyers lives, we're going to have to answer to that season. And I, I want you all to be prepared for that. When you see people out in the wild and they've never met a Dayton fan before, I guarantee you the first thing out of their mouth is going to be, oh, you know, I feel so sorry for you guys for 2020. So prepare yourselves, people, because this is our existence now. I hope you enjoyed the draft special that I put out kind of short notice. Didn't put a lot of announcement into this one. Uh, I just knew there was some really great conversation that happened in the off season. And I wanted to push it back out to you guys so that uh, you had it preparing for the draft. And if you made it all the way to this point of the episode, uh, it stands to reason that you probably care a great deal about uh, seeing where Obi ends up Wednesday, uh, November 18th. So that's going to do it for our show for tonight. I'm your host, Sully. This has been Talking Out Loud. Uh, I can certainly go back and say on behalf of Sam Vicini and Matt Babcock, but those interviews you know, took place a long time ago. Uh, don't forget, t- new Talking Out Loud episodes every Thursday. You can also catch us on ESPN Radio, 6 p.m. Eastern. That's ESPN Radio 1410. If you're not inside the Dayton market, that's cool. Just go into iHeartRadio, search ESPN Dayton, and it'll come right up. Boom, done. You're hearing the show every week. Uh, So until next time, I'm Sully. This is Talking Out Loud. You know there's two rules. You wear red and be loud. And like I said last time, I'm going to take you out with the same song every time we end the show. So here's beer. Later.
This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.